Great. Well, lovely to, uh, to be with you. Just say I'm aware that as we talk around uh, issues of sexuality, we're potentially in areas which will throw up questions. Um, so uh, we've got a, a particular way of asking uh, questions. So uh, this involves technology. Um, so um, on your phones, you may be able to get the website Slido, uh, S-L-I-D-O.com. And uh, it will ask you for a code. And we've gone for LO, which is living out, uh, Lemington. So if you've got questions as we're going along that you want us to look at afterwards, uh, you can also actually look at the questions that have come in and see which ones you like. And probably ones at the top will be what we uh, spend time looking at. But uh, I've already alluded uh, to the fact that this is a personal issue as I uh, speak about the issue of sexuality. I became a, a Christian around the age of 12. I had Christian parents that I was really thankful for. I had the slight problem of being born age 40. And uh, being born age 40 meant as a sort of six, seven-year-old, I kind of found things like action songs and memory verses hideously patronizing because I wanted to be an adult. But around the age of 12, I realized that the God I'd heard about was real and I needed to know him. And I became a Christian. And, and then not long after that, like most other human beings, I started to develop sexual attraction, sexual feelings. As a teenager, those were for boys rather than girls. As an adult, those are for men rather than women. It's not changed. And so really for the last 30 years or so, the big question in my life has been this. How do I put my sexuality and wanting to have Jesus Lord together? How do those things fit together? Now, that's my personal story. I'm aware that on this issue we'll have other personal stories, maybe to do with friends, family. Maybe to do with being a parent, trying to work out how do you raise children. Or maybe just being part of a church and working out where should the church land on this issue. It's a big question. But the more I've wrestled with it over the years, the more I've realized you need to go backwards. In other words, you can't actually talk about sexuality by starting with sexuality. As I look at culture... What I notice is there are essentially two ways of doing identity, two ways of working out who we are, two ways of deciding what the most important thing about us is. The prevailing view in our culture will be this, to work out who I am, I need to look inside myself, see what's there, and live that out. Who am I? I am my deepest desires, whether in the area of sexuality or possibly in the area of gender. Now, let me give you an example of that. Um, Nigel Owens was the, uh, the most successful rugby referee in the world. He refereed the 2015 Rugby World Cup final. He's also gay. And around the time that he refereed the Rugby World Cup final, he gave interviews talking about growing up in a Welsh village as somebody who's gay. Tragically, that was really hard for him, and there were a couple of uh, suicide attempts early on in his life. But he talks about how he's come to a place of acceptance, I couldn't accept who I was. I didn't want to be the person I was becoming. I didn't want to be gay. But after I accepted who I was, the next challenge was whether rugby would accept who I am. Rugby has supported me, and players, spectators, and pundits have all enabled me to be who I am. Now, I reckon you've got to be fairly hard-hearted not to feel the force of a story like that. It's a kind of redemption story, isn't it? Your really difficult life comes to a place of acceptance, goes on to have a successful career. It's a powerful story. 
But you just notice as you look at it, the assumption that lies behind it. My sexuality is my identity. Is it three times who I am, who I am, who I am? You know, the most important thing about me is who I'm sexually attracted to. And that is the prevailing view in our culture. It's not even argued for. It's just assumed. That is who we are. Now, I reckon if there isn't a God, that's the best we can do. If there's no God, how do I work out who I am? I look inside myself, see what's there, and live that out. That's the best we can manage. But what if there is a God? What if there's a God who knows me better than I know myself? What if that God has shown himself to be loving and kind as he walks around on the earth? What if that God wants to give me a different identity? There are basically two ways of determining who we are and how we should live. So I know you were expecting me to talk about sexuality this evening, but before you get to sexuality, you've got to answer this question, what's the universe about? Is it a universe where I'm center stage and my desires are center stage, or is it a universe where God is center stage and I find my best self as I live in line with what he says? For instance, I talk to my, uh, my friends, my non-Christian friends, who are slightly mystified by some of the decisions that I've made. Andy, why don't you just go and find yourself a boyfriend? My answer generally these days is, well, it kind of depends what you think the universe is about. You've actually got to go all the way back there. Now, let me assume for a moment this evening that there's a God. I, I kind of thought I might be on safe territory here with that assumption. What is his plan for sexuality and marriage? We do know the answer to that question. We know the answer to that question because Jesus tells us. There's a moment in the Gospels in Matthew 19 where Jesus is asked a question by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. It happens to be a question about divorce. But Jesus says, before I get on to divorce, I want to talk about marriage. Let me define marriage for you. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And I said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here Jesus defines marriage. He says marriage is as God laid it out right at the beginning. It's male and female. Just in passing, by the way, this is one of the moments where Jesus says that what the Bible says is God's word. Fully enough, in Genesis, which he's quoting, the, the line, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, that's said actually by the narrator of Genesis. But here Jesus says that's what God says. And that's because what Genesis says is what God says. Jesus is here asserting the reliability, the inspiration of God's words. And he says the right context for a one flesh sexual union is the marriage between a man and a woman. And I can't see a way around that, actually, even though that limits some of my options. I think that's important to say. A number of years ago, I was asked to go to a church, not a million miles from here, actually, near Birmingham, and um, they got me in one week, and they got somebody who would take a more revisionist position in the next week. 
I remember thinking this is going to be quite a difficult task when I read a sermon that the pastor had preached the week before I came, where he came up with this line, well, the Bible seems to be pretty negative about same-sex marriage, but of course, Jesus was really welcoming and inclusive. Now, to be fair, Jesus is gloriously welcoming and inclusive. But did reflect that any sentence that goes, the Bible says dot, 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 but Jesus says dot, 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 it's always going to be mildly problematic. More than that, it kind of implied that Jesus has nothing to say about this. Now, to be fair, Jesus doesn't ever explicitly talk about homosexual practice. But he does talk about sexual immorality And undoubtedly, in the people who were listening to him at the time, they would have defined sexual immorality as sex outside marriage, heterosexual marriage. And so if Jesus thought differently to that, he would have had to correct them, and he never does. No, Jesus does define the right context for sex as the marriage of a man and a woman. And I don't think there's an easy way around that. What he does then go on to do is give great dignity to those who are single. So at the end of that section, the uh, the disciples kind of say, gosh, you've defined marriage quite tightly, Jesus. Maybe it would be better not to get married. And Jesus says, well, actually, for some people, that might well be the case. There are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made that way by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Eunuchs are those who don't have sexual relationships. And as well as perhaps physical disability or tragically what happened in the ancient world of sort of forced castration, he says there are those who will choose not to have sexual relationships out of loyalty to me and my kingdom. I love a verse like that kind of means I'm included. Probably there are the single people here in this room who are included within that verse as well. And Jesus gives great dignity to people in that position. remember a few years ago, I was speaking at a, a church, um, it's up in Liverpool as it happens. And, you know, this often happens to somebody sort of mid-40s. So, hey, good to see you on the, Have you left your wife and kids at home? No, I'm single, actually. They then came up with this great line. Why, have you never found anybody you like? (laughs) Or, actually, have you never found anybody who likes you? I remember just thinking, actually, that conversation would be much easier if Jesus was involved. Because Jesus gives great dignity to people who are single, who are not married. Of course, In some ways, somebody who doesn't have a sexual relationship because of the plan of the kingdom does speak about Jesus himself, actually, who never has a sexual relationship. And so what Jesus asserts is that marriage, the right context of sex, is a marriage between a man and a woman, and then gives great respect to those who don't have a sexual relationship. It's fair to say that what Jesus puts positively... The rest of the Bible puts more negative. We're not going to spend time on this tonight. But suffice it to say, there really isn't a passage in the Bible that speaks positively about same-sex sexual activity. There aren't many, but they are all negative about it, and there is a consistency to that. 
And so as you look at God coming to earth, God speaking in the Bible, what you see is a consistent message that marriage is to be male, female. That is the context for sex. And I don't think you can get around that, actually. But to be honest, as I've taught this over the years, the conversation I have most frequently goes a little bit like this. Okay, Andy, I can kind of see it's in the Bible. I just don't like it. And that's understandable, particularly when there are people close to us involved. We might even say, okay, I can kind of see Jesus says it, but I still don't like it. And I understand that. The problem, of course, in the end is if it's, you go down the line of it's in the Bible, but I just don't like it. If I can put it like this, it turns God into the kind of God who makes you eat sprouts. I'm assuming, by the way, you are sensible people and think sprouts are repulsive. It's the kind of God who makes you tolerate stuff that's just nasty and unpleasant. Go on, here's this teaching on sexuality, you've got to eat it. I don't know about you, in the end it's quite hard to keep worshipping a God who makes you eat sprouts. And so what I want to look at is why this is the case. And to try and persuade you it's actually good news. Because we're going to look at, we're going to look at God's ultimate purpose for sex and marriage. And I want to look at one main Old Testament passage. Sorry, for those of you who were here in September and have thought, gosh, I've heard all this before, this is different, so listen in. Because I'm looking at a different passage. I want to look at Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Slightly counterintuitively, Psalm 45 is my favorite psalm. And you might think that's a weird choice if you know anything about Psalm 45, because Psalm 45 is all about a wedding, which might be a weird choice for somebody who's single to have as their favorite psalm. But Psalm 45 is a wedding song, and it's not just any person involved in the wedding. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. And what you get in Psalm 45 is the kind of poet laureate of the day writing a poem for a royal wedding. And in this poem, you get a description of this king. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. So this king who's the most excellent king ever, the one whose lips are anointed with grace, the one we discover in the next few verses who goes into battle, who rides forth victoriously for truth, humility, and justice. So a warrior, but a warrior for truth and humility. A king who manages to win victories such that, verse 5 of Psalm 45, the nations fall beneath your feet. You've got this king on his wedding day, lips anointed with grace, a great warrior for truth and humility, one who's revered by all nations. And then Psalm 45 kind of excels itself. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, verse 6. Therefore, verse 7, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Psalm 45 is incredible because there's no way around this. You have two different characters referred to as God in Psalm 45. This king is addressed as divine and is then somehow blessed by God. 
And you might be thinking, who on earth is this? Who on earth could fit this criteria? And then we discover as it goes on that this king is a happy king. The music of the strings makes you glad. Now, it probably won't surprise you that when you get into the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1 has various passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And Psalm 45 is in that list. Because he really, really is the king whose lips are anointed with grace. The one will say to that woman full of shame, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. The one who goes into battle with sin and Satan and death and victoriously triumphs for truth and humility and justice. The one who's now revered across all nations. Do you want evidence of that? Well, we are. Miles away from Israel, centuries later, we're praising Jesus tonight. And the one who is simultaneously God, who says, before Abraham was, I am, who is blessed by God. You're my son whom I love. And of course, the picture in Psalm 45 is of this bridegroom king. And as you get into the New Testament, three times in the Gospels, Jesus uses the bridegroom to describe himself. John the Baptist's disciples, why don't you and your disciples fast? How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn whilst he's with them? Jesus is our ultimate bridegroom king, according to Psalm 45. Now, of course, to have a wedding, you need a second character. And as Psalm 45 works through, you have this bride appear. And in Psalm 45, the proposal takes place. Now, in those days, kings didn't get down on bended knee. It was done through an intermediary. And in Psalm 45, you get this. Listen, daughter, pay careful attention Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. And what you get is this invitation to this bride to say, leave your own house, be married to the king and set up a whole new household. Let him be enthralled by your beauty. Isn't that remarkable? Because, of course, if you get into the New Testament, if Jesus is the bridegroom, the only option for the bride is the church, is us. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. It's actually not the only passage in the Old Testament that will use that kind of language. Listen for a moment to Isaiah 62, speaking about God's relationship with his people. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. One of the joys, actually, of being a church leader was sometimes standing about here, there would be a guy looking quite nervous in his suit, there at the back would be a woman dressed in white. And the joy of standing here was I got to see his face as she came down the aisle. And he was normally vaguely positive about what he saw. <laughs> He's kind of thrilled. Hey, she's beautiful and she's coming for me. And as a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isn't that amazing? 
I don't know about you, those are words I wouldn't dare write, (laughs) except they're here. (laughs) I mean, quite apart from sexuality, I hope you feel loved by the Lord this evening. King, enthralled by your beauty. You know, sometimes I'm tempted to feel sorry for Jesus. You know, he wants a bride and he gets, well, us. (laughs) But it's not the way he sees it. King is enthralled by your beauty. Psalm 45, as it moves towards a conclusion, has the wedding day. Led in with joy and gladness, they, that's the bride and her bridesmaids, her companions, they enter the palace of the king. A day of great joy and gladness is where Psalm 45 finishes. And of course, it's a picture of the ultimate final day. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Can you imagine that day? Jesus, will you take this church to be your wedded wife? I will. Church, will you take this Jesus to be your husband? We will. And we will indeed live happily ever after. Hope you're looking forward to it. It's going to be quite good. The Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. The Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. Now, I know for some people, perhaps particularly blokes actually, the idea of being a bride feels quite, you know, weird. But the point that's being made is this. Probably the greatest intensity of emotions that we feel in this life is in the area of sex and romance and marriage. That's the, the greatest intensity of feeling that we have. As the reason the Bible uses this marriage, sexual almost, metaphor for the relationship that we have with Jesus, it's not because the ultimate relationship with Jesus is sexual, it's just that it, it is the greatest intensity ever of loving feeling. You know, sometimes I think we can think, you know, the great feelings are kind of sex and romance oh, when there's Jesus over there, whereas actually that's just a pointer to the sheer intensity of love that Jesus has for us, and that one day, gloriously, we will feel perfectly for him. It will be that intense. But if that's where the universe is heading... If the universe is heading to this eternal marriage between Jesus and the church, then basically marriage is intended to be a picture of that. That's why we long for marriages that are loving and faithful, because the relationship between Jesus and the church is to be loving and faithful. But it's also why we believe that it has to be heterosexual. Because the union between Jesus and the church is a union between people who are different. Christ and the church aren't interchangeable. Uh, Forgive me, because this is a personal issue for me, I generally hate trite statements, but if you'll forgive me one, in eternity Jesus doesn't marry Jesus. And in eternity, the church doesn't marry the church. I mean, can you imagine the church marrying the church without Jesus? I mean, you really would just be left with an eternity of notices. (laughs) It has to be Jesus and the church locked together. 
It has to be this union in difference. And that's why Christians particularly, I understand why society will struggle with marriage as a picture, but it's why Christians have to be clear on this. Christians have to be clear that the world is heading to that day, that marriage is a picture of that, and so it has to be male, female, picture of Christ and the church. C.S. Lewis isn't trite when he puts it like this. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and seminal figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. Do you see the point that he's making? If you like, marriage is a picture that God has painted, painted deep within our hearts to show us eternity. And I, for one, don't feel like I've got the liberty to say, well, actually, the picture will work just as well if we just tweak that and we just change that and we just paint over that. I don't feel I've got the liberty to do that. This is the picture that God has painted, pointing to eternity, and we're not to change it. In other words, sexuality is essentially a signpost. Sexuality is a signpost that points beyond itself to the eternal wedding between Christ and the church. And the problem is what we do in culture, and let's be honest, we sometimes do this in the church as well, is forget that it's a signpost. It's almost as though you're on a kind of once-in-a-lifetime trip to the Grand Canyon, say, and you're kind of driving along and you see a signpost, Grand Canyon, three miles that way, and you stop at the signpost and you get out and you put nice hats on and you have a dance and you take pictures and you have a meal and then you go home. And people at home say, you know, what was the Grand Canyon like? You say, oh, the signpost was beautiful. Now, to be sure, marriage is a beautiful signpost. But it is a signpost. It's intended to point beyond itself to eternity. And I reckon having that perspective is really healthy for those of us who are married and those of us who are single. Apparently, I hear from those who are married that it's not always perfect. I, I, I just hear this rumor comes in occasionally. And actually, it's quite healthy to realize marriage in this life isn't intended to be perfect, but to point to what is. And sometimes, actually, we can take the pressure off our marriages just saying, yeah, it will be imperfect. That's normal. It's to point to the ultimate reality of the perfect marriage. But can I say it's really helpful for those who are single? Oh, believe me, I know some of the pain of that. But what I hold on to is this. I'm not going to miss out on the ultimate reality. I'm only going to miss out on the signpost. And if you'll forgive me, I've done the maths. I'm going to be single for about 0.0000001% of my existence. As part of the church, I'm going to be married to Jesus for 99.9999999% of my existence because life is short and eternity is long. And forgive me, that doesn't deal with all the pain, but it does give perspective on it. We're not going to miss out ultimately 
because it's a signpost. And my appeal is this. You see, I think what we do, frankly, within the church at times as well, is basically say, finding the romantic relationship is it. That's the thing. And, oh, there's this kind of Christ in the church thing as well, isn't there? And I think if we have an eternal perspective, which is a good perspective to have, what we'll say is, ah, Christ and the church forever, that's everything. Oh, and human marriage is okay as well. It seems to me the Bible's perspective. And actually, that's why we need to be different from our culture. That's why on this issue, the church can't simply go with the culture, because the culture thinks finding the romantic relationship is everything. And we don't think that, or at least we shouldn't. That's actually why we're out of step with culture, not just around male, female, male, male. That's just part of it. That arises from what we think relationships are about. We think they're signposts. And culture thinks they're ultimate. And we need to be thoroughly Christian on this. Lastly, more briefly, we've seen, for me, the reason marriage should be male, female is because of what the universe is about, God is at the center. Because what Jesus teaches about marriage, he teaches that it's male, female. Because the whole story of the Bible which says that marriage is a signpost and so it's pointing to a relationship that is between two people who are different. And then lastly, it seems to me, just the whole shape of the Christian life means it fits for marriage to be male, female, Just listen to these words from Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Can we really ask people not to have a sexual relationship? Is that that at all a thing we can do? Well, when Jesus invites people to be his disciples, he does say, come and die. (laughs) Deny yourself. Take up a cross. I think one of the reasons we sometimes struggle with this is because we've got a slightly skewed idea of what the Christian life is like. Jesus is very realistic. To deny fundamentally important aspects of ourselves is simply part of what it is to be a Christian, actually. But it's also the pathway to life. Whoever loses their life for me will save it, will gain it. And certainly for me, has there been a cost in living this way? Yes. In terms of the opportunity to develop deeper friendships, in terms of the opportunity to actually have to depend on the Lord in this aspect of life, would I say I've begun to find life even as I've denied something? Absolutely I would. Which is no surprise because Jesus says that's what we should expect. And as we live this way, Jesus bestows a better identity on us, a better one than simply look inside yourself, see what's there and live it out. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Andy, who are you? I'm a child of God who occasionally wrestles with sexuality issues. That's who I am. It's the best identity going. And what we're called to be as the church as we live this out, is this. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul talks about the church, and he says, the church is God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
If we're to be the church that God calls us to be at this time, there will be two things that will be necessary. To be a pillar and foundation of the truth. The church's job is to lift up the truth and display the truth and exalt the truth, including in the Bible's definition of marriage. To lift up the truth that marriage is a picture of the most blessed, glorious, wonderful union in the world. The church's job is to lift that up. And I need to be honest, actually, if we deny that, I think we fail to be the church God calls us to be. But at the same time, to be God's household, to be God's family, where single people are included within the family unit, where friendships are deep and emotionally satisfying. So we're not saying to people, the choice you've got is marriage or kind of miserable loneliness. The choice you've got is marriage and being part of God's family or being single and being part of God's family. And I'm beyond grateful for a church that's done that for me over the last few years. And how do we live in culture? I love 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I know we're going to be out of step with the culture. And it might be that on this issue they kind of say, you're doing wrong. That's normal. It's part of being a Christian, actually. And Peter says, go back into that culture and do good. Don't get defensive, don't get angry, go back and do good. Our goal as a church is to baffle people. Have you ever thought that? What I want, actually, is for Christians to live in such a way that people say, I find your view on sexuality all a bit weird and old-fashioned and maybe a bit prejudiced, and yet you are so kind and so compassionate and loving. Uh, How does that go together? That's the goal. Be known for your kindness and compassion, even as you hold to a view that people find slightly weird, such that people end up perhaps asking the question, why? And you say, well, because of what I believe the universe is about. And people say, what? What do you believe the universe is about? I quite like that question, because it's ultimately about Jesus. Let me end with this. One of the reasons people end up changing their mind about sexuality, particularly within the church, frankly, isn't because they suddenly think the Bible says something different to what it said for 2,000 years. The reason people change their minds on it is because of the power of stories. Often I understand this, stories of people they know and love, or maybe like that powerful Nigel Owens story that I started with. I want us to be convinced that we really do have the best story going. Let me tell you the story of Julia. Julia is basically a composite of people that I know. Grew up non-Christian family in her case. Again, teenage years wasn't something she chose, but found herself attracted to other girls, to other women. Had a couple of relationships in her teenage years. Went to university. Christians loved her, befriended her. She went to church. She got converted. She realized Jesus was Lord, and that did need mean an end to sexual relationships with people of the same sex. And that was hard, and occasionally in her early years as a Christian, she lost her way and had to come back and repent. And it was painful at times seeing friends get married, painful at times seeing friends have kids. But she threw herself into the life of the church and developed a spiritual family, led the church youth group and had spiritual children that she cared for. Until 
The time comes after Julia had persevered through this where she dies. And she meets the Lord. I saw it all. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your wedding day. And 10,000 years into eternity, she looks back and says, I'm so glad I was faithful to Jesus. That's the Christian story, isn't it? Not embellish that particularly. That's just the story of the Christian life, according to the Bible. And I just want us to have the confidence. It really is the best story in the world. Jonathan. Andy, thank you so much. Let's just take... We'll have a chance for questions and answers in a minute, but let's just be still and just a chance to let that settle. And in the stillness, Lord, we pray that you would bring to the top of our mind what you're wanting to say to us or the question that we should ask. And if you've got a question that you'd like to ask, you might want to start. Can we put the Slido address back up on the screen? Uh, you can tap that in. And uh, if you haven't got a question, you can see what questions come up. And if you like them, the most popular questions will come to the top. Uh, and Andy can tackle those. Um, as that's going on, can I invite you to stand and have a little stretch and a chat? And that might help you extroverts to think. I know it's easier for the introverts to think when you're quiet. but. Some of us who are wired the other way need to talk to people to think. So stand up and have a chat, and you might, start, you might want to just talk about anything or what question you might like to ask. But we'll have a couple of minutes and a stretch, and then we'll have our question and answer time. We're going to finish by eight, so you know where we're going. So we'll, finish our, we'll have our last song just before that. So Andy, come back. Uh, thank you so much. That wasn't much of a rest. I should have got you a <laughs> cup of coffee or something like that. Um, but if I was technically any use at all, I would operate the Slido and throw questions at him. But I'm not, so I'm just giving it to Andy. Great. Um, I'm just going to work from the, uh, the top. And um, forgive me, I already know we're not going to get through 15 questions in about 10 minutes. Um, but I'll see, see where to go. Uh, what is wrong with a gay couple in a loving and committed marriage? Can they not demonstrate some of the qualities of God through their relationship? Uh, yes, they can. So there are certain aspects to a same-sex re relationship that, you know, you would say there will be good elements in it. So where you see somebody committed in a, a kind of friendship and so on, and showing, making sacrifice for others, you know, there are clearly elements of that that are good. Nevertheless, I do want to say that the kind of sexual component to that does, is outside of what God says is good for, for human beings for the two reasons that that isn't the way God set things up at the beginning. And because sex and marriage is intended to be a picture of Christ in the church because they have to be different. So it isn't to say every aspect of that relationship is evil. There will be beautiful things within it. 
but it isn't what God says is the right way for us to order a sexual relationship. And partly there are issues to do with just the complementarity of male, female, and how that's essential in a relationship that I've not spent time on, because actually it means bringing different things to a relationship, both physically and also as part of our being. And so I'm not at all saying everything must be wrong and evil, but nevertheless it does seem to me to be sinful in as much as it is outside of what God has established in his plan, and Jesus does uh, affirm that. Uh, forgive me, do also feel free to come back at me uh, afterwards. I'm very happy to do that, particularly if I don't get to your question. How can I best engage with this topic with my LGBTQI plus friends and family without pushing them away? I mean, different things I'd say. Again, part of me, particularly where those friends aren't Christians, their main need is to meet with God <laughs> Actually, a same-sex relationship will be a symptom of something rather than the cause of it. The problem we've all got as human beings is that we don't glorify God nor give thanks to him. And so with my gay friends, if I'm honest, I'm just treating them normally, you know, the same way I'm treating my straight friends. And I'm wanting to have opportunity to point to how beautiful Jesus is. Now, where the question will come up, and let's be honest, lots of sort of headlines and so on will mean the question will come up. That is why I'm saying, look, I believe everybody is made in the image of God. I believe everybody is worthy of dignity and respect. Homophobia where people have been suffered prejudice or not given jobs, I don't believe any of that. But because of what I believe the universe about, because of the love story at the heart of the universe, I actually think marriage and sex is probably about something different than what you think it's about. I think it's intended to be a picture that points to something else. And so for that reason, I do think sex has to be between two people who are different. Now, it might be our friends are slightly mystified by that, but at least we're talking about Jesus at that point, which is kind of what I want to talk about. So I'll use the phrase, the love story at the heart of the universe is something I want to talk about a lot. And it's, that's where I get my views from. So going backwards, resisting homophobia, but saying this is what I think sex is about. It's ultimately pointing to something else. How can we support young children to have a healthy biblical foundation of marriage, singleness, and sexuality? What are helpful, unhelpful things to do and say? Um, yeah, so a question around parenting. Says he who's not a parent. Um, I think we probably need to talk to children about this much earlier than we would do historically. And it's partly because I actually want Christians to be able to talk to their kids before playground talks to the kids, actually. So I think it's just important for us to be talking about this, probably at a younger age than would have been the case historically. And um, I think there are... Well, I kind of want to say... I want to do a simplified version of what I've just done, actually. So how do we work out who we are? Actually, our loving God tells us who we are, and that's the best way to live. I'd be saying that. I would be saying, actually, as Christians, we do believe sex is for a man and a woman because it's a picture of the relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. And then I'd be saying this, but there will be people who think differently, and it might be actually that you struggle with that in years to come. And actually, I also want you to know that God values everybody. 
and we're not to treat anybody badly because of their views on this. That makes sense. So I think you're doing three things, actually. Identity, you're doing um, pointing to what marriage is about according to the Bible, and then you are just actually trying to equip children. How do we relate to people who disagree with us graciously and compassionately rather than arrogantly and self-righteously? Um, if we're born in God's image, why are some people born with sexual feelings for the opposite sex? Oh, that's a complex question. Um, we actually don't really know why people, some people are same-sex attracted gay. There isn't actually guarantee that we are born that way. There just is a whole mixture of evidence, and there isn't a clear, explicit reason as to why people are gay, same-sex attracted, we don't know. If you think about the Bible's worldview and what it is to be human, as human beings, we're made by God and we're also fallen and broken. That's, that's just the reality of human beings. We see that in a whole manner of ways in which we function as human beings, created in God's image and broken. So if I'm honest, I don't tend to use the phrase about myself, God made me this way because that would just imply I'm only created. I would actually say God's made me, I'm made in his image, I'm precious in his sight, I have great dignity and worth and value, and I also have broken desires like all the rest of us. And one of the aspects of my broken desires will be my attraction to people of the same sex, or at least my desire to have a sexual relationship that's outside God's plan. And so we are both created and fallen, and we do need to hold on to that if we're thinking about this. Um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm trying to do this. With hindsight, what would you say now to your teenage self? Um, Funnily enough, the, the, the verse that means the most to me in the Bible is, uh, is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's got this thorn in the flesh. And uh, three times he prays the Lord because it's obviously painful for him. Lord, take it away from me. Take it away from me. Take it away from me. And um, I think probably as a teenager I prayed more than three times. Lord, take it away from me. Uh, and God's word to Paul is this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And it, I suppose what I'd say to my teenage self is, don't worry, that will be true. His grace will be sufficient for you. His power will be made perfect in weakness. And so I think I'd be saying to my teenage self, it will be okay, actually. You know, not won't always be easy, but it will be okay because God's grace will be sufficient for you. Isn't this pushing people away from the church I think, in the end, the church is at its best when it's distinct and when it's different. Because otherwise you end up saying to culture, hey, come to church because we believe exactly the same as you. Yeah, we believe sex is the same as you. We believe romance is the same as you. Hey, come because we're exactly the same as you. And in the end, I don't think there's actually great power in that. The power comes from being different, from being distinctive, from saying that marriage and sex is about something different to 
what you think it's about. And to be honest, that's the main place I'd go. hope you've picked that up tonight. But my main emphasis isn't, hey, marriage is awesome for you guys. Oh, sorry. But actually to say to all of us, it's about something different to what you think it's about. And actually something that in the end is much more satisfying. It's kind of what we looked at this morning, actually. That the love that God offers is actually much more stable than just this one-to-one romance. And so we're carrying a message that is distinct and is different. And if I'm honest, the example of that is Jesus, isn't it? You know, I'm just struck that when Jesus has a moment in front of the crowd, he doesn't say... I mean, if you gave me a crowd of people who weren't followers of Jesus, what I would say is, come, become a Christian. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's great. It's magnificent. Come, whatever your situation, come. And Jesus does do that in places, but also, as I mentioned earlier, there's also a place where Jesus says, hey, crowd, come follow me, and it'll be death. Take up a cross. Deny yourself. I need to be honest, the church needs to have the courage to be able to say that, just to be realistic. Hey, life is about something completely different to the way you think it's about, and the way to find life is not fulfill the desires within you. The way to find life is to realize there are better desires to have for a God who is love and a God who is satisfying. Andy, thank you so much. Can we give Andy a huge round of applause? I I said we'd stop. Now we're going to have a a final song. Andy will be around for a bit afterwards. But let's stand. Uh, I'm going to lead in a prayer, and we're going to sing a song that actually picks up what Andy was preaching about. Our identity comes from who God says we are, uh, more than from anything else. So, Father, we thank you that at the heart of the universe is the relationship between you, between Jesus, between the Holy Spirit, uh, an eternal relationship of love that you invite us to, to join, to be caught up into. We pray your blessing on everyone here who's married. Give them grace to love their husband or wife in the way that you would have and to be a picture of the great marriage of Christ in the church. We pray for everyone here who is single, for grace to love you and give themselves to you and know you. Pray for grace for all of us. We know that to live this out uh, is difficult, hard to do marriage well, hard to do single well. We pray for real grace in this church to be a place that welcomes everybody and points everybody to Jesus. And we pray, once more, pour your spirit on us as we sing. And as we sing, would you help us to know who you say we are? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.